Can you grab a pen and grab your bulletin? I want you to take some notes real quick. Um, if you don't have a pen, you can just imagine your list in your head. But I want you to make a list. I'm gonna, I have a couple of announcements while I'm talking and you're pretending to listen. I want you to make a list of the three greatest songs ever written. All right? And not, it's not hard, and I'm not going to judge you. We're going to see if you get it right. But um, three greatest songs ever written, all right? If, you can write it down, or if you have your phone, you can write it down real quick on your phone or something like that. Um, best songs ever written. If you're not into music, you could maybe cheat and write down like the three best movies, or if you don't understand any of that, maybe the three best basketball players ever. Um, but that kind of thing, all right? Um, but as we're doing that, I want to make sure that you see on the other page from where you're writing down uh, that we have a kids camp coming up in the summer. Uh, our kids camp is a little different than most churches. We do ours in the evening, uh, so it's, um, we actually like it to be a whole family kind of celebration where parents can get involved and do things. And so most of our church is there that week, and we go Sunday to Thursday night. Uh, so for vacation schedules and things like that for people that are going away on the weekend in the summer. But uh, we want you to be able to be involved with that. And so at this point, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have some sign-ups for being able to volunteer in different roles because everyone basically does this. Um, so, but we want you to be able to mark it on your calendar so you don't miss that week uh, since summer is coming really, really fast, right? Someday it's going to stop raining. Um, <laughs> The uh, other thing is on Saturday, our high school group is having their serve day. They do this every uh, now and then where they actually get together and uh, serve uh, other people, uh, which is a significant part of their growth, I think. And it's just a ton of fun for them to be able to get together and do that. And it makes a difference in a family's life. So if you're in high school or you have a kid who's in high school and you want to be a part of that, I want to encourage you to talk to Joe and Brandy. If you don't know who Joe and Brandy are, you can catch me after and I can introduce you, all right? Uh, they are our uh, high school group leaders and they're phenomenal, all right? So, and uh, I'll make them stand up and we can all clap for them because they would, would love that. But you can just clap for them afterwards personally, so. All right, three best bands, all right? Do you have your list down? Does anyone need more time? Or, sorry, three best, wow. Okay, some of you are like, really think you got this right, all right. I'm telling you, you don't, but all right. <laughs> Three best songs. All right, can I hear a couple? Can you just tell me like you're number one or something like that? Some outward looking people, extroverts, raise your hand. Yeah. Sorry, what? I can only imagine. Who sang that? I can't hear you. I, I'm sure it was good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, too many, I've shot too many guns, I can't hear. Who else? 23rd Psalm. 23rd Psalm? Oh, okay, who wrote that? <laughs> David. <laughs> and you like the music or the lyrics? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Other songs? Oh, okay. Jesus Loves Me. Amazing Grace. Come on, there's got to be some rap fans. What's that? Okay. So there's an awkward section of our church over here. <laughs> Other ones? No one's bringing up Eminem's Stan? The greatest rap song ever written? What's that? More Than a Feeling? Who wrote that? I don't know this stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, good try. 
I'm going to play for you the greatest song ever written, though, right now. Here we go. Hey? You know this song right away, don't you? And you all want to, yeah, see? Is that good or what? We're just going to live here for a minute. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. I don't, I don't want to get too excited. That's a good song, isn't it? That's Jump Around by House of Pain, written in 1999 or released in 1990. Was it 1999 or 96? One of those. 96? All right. Still, the greatest song ever written. Like up to that point, all other songs were found inferior, right? And then that song, I don't know why we write songs anymore, because we have Jump Around by House of Pain. We don't need any more songs, right? I bet if I looked at your list, I could tell you when you went to high school or college, <laughs> right? My list is, is pretty simple. It's Jump Around, Stand by Eminem, and uh, I don't know if I had, maybe Technotronic. Uh, do you remember Technotronic? Like, uh, no, you don't. Awesome. <laughs> this means you didn't go to high school in the early 90s. But um, all of my songs, if, top three movies, Bill and Ted's, right? Excellent Adventure. The first Speed, right? They jumped a bus, all right? And like uh, Fight Club, that was 1999 as well, Fight Club. We have to have a Brad Pitt movie on your list, right? Or if you named your three best basketball players, of course, Shaq. You have to name Shaq. Uh, Penny Hardaway pre-injury, of course, that robbed us all of the greatness of Penny Hardaway. And you have to say LeBron because of my kids, right? But when you look at your three best, I bet your three best aren't the best because of the best songs ever written. Lord knows Jump Around is not the best musical song ever written. And if you YouTube this, Vanilla Ice did a cover, and you can't unhear it. It's terrible. <laughs> like, like it ruined a full day of my week. Not just that Vanilla Ice like violated the best song ever written like that, but that it was Vanilla Ice who did it. Uh, you can YouTube that after church. You're welcome. I'll ruin your day, all right? But there is probably, if you have this list of the best ever written, it's not because they were actually the best. Like, if we actually thought about the best songs, we should be thinking about, like, some classical music or something, right? Like, we should be, like, there should be some orchestra, something that takes more skill than a DJ hitting a button and somebody singing along to a track, right? We should, be able to, we should be able to recognize that, but the best music ever probably has a story for us. For me, it's a dance uh, with my basketball team when they played this, and we got kicked out of that dance for what we did during this song, right? We didn't dance. We did mosh pits, which we thought was physically fighting, um, like punching each other, ramming into each other. We thought that's what you do at a dance. Some of you actually did dancing. Um, we hit each other, and they kicked us out. We thought it was awesome, right? <laughs> and uh, it, we were at a basketball tournament, and we thought we were nuts, and the other teams did too. It was fantastic. Um, but that's what this song is for me. When you play that song, my mind goes there, 
immediately. And I bet there's songs for you if we played that first, that first dance song from your wedding and your mind goes there immediately, right? You play, for, for me and Heather, it was Lauren Hill. And if you play any Lauren Hill song, we go there, or I, my mind goes there immediately, right? I can't believe none of you brought up the Fugees either. So I'm going to put on Facebook a list for you of songs you need to listen to so that you can appreciate the contribution of the 90s, all right? <laughs> Kids these days, and they're let it go. <laughs> all right? <laughs> but when we think of what's the greatest, probably it was from a time in our life which we thought was pretty awesome, right? Like this time in our life which was maybe the greatest part of our life. We look back on that part of our life and we're like, that part of our life was awesome. And so the things, the movies, the relationships, the songs, the athletes, the artists, the cultural phenomenons, everything. Like I still wear these kind of clothes because of Nirvana, right? (laughs) If you go anywhere in the rest of the country, they don't dress the way we're all dressed. Some of you wear normal clothes, right? Some of us can't wear non-plaid. Like, we feel awkward because we were raised at a time when Nirvana told us who we are. And so there's this, uh, it's not a nostalgia because nostalgia is like when you look back and you remember the good but you forget the bad, right? Like when you, if you have uh, like newborn kids here right now, someday you forget how tired you are. That's why families have more than one child, Right? <laughs> Some of you forget really fast, or some of you just keep forgetting, you know. Um, But there is this, at some point, you look back and you don't remember the late nights, you don't remember the diapers. Some some point you look back and you don't remember potty training, you don't remember the hard parts. At some point in your job, you don't remember how hard you worked in the mailroom at the beginning because of that's nostalgia, we'd look back and we want to recognize the good. And so we have this desire in us for some reason for this good old days, right? And usually the good old days is an imaginary thing in our mind with which we're familiar. Like I know how to operate in the good old days. If you want to talk about the NBA in the late 90s, early 2000s, the end of the Michael Jordan era and the beginning of the Kobe Shaq Lakers, I'm down. My son wants to talk about these Michael Carter Williams and Oladipo Olawale. I can't even say them. They're like rookies, and he thinks they're good. I'm like, show me some championships, yo, you know? (laughs) And I'm not saying I sound like my father, but don't we end up there? And we talk to two generations ahead of me, and they go on and on about how Bill Russell's the greatest ever, or Will Chamberlain, and I'm like, let's see them D up on Shaq. Let's see it, you know? Like today, they're older, Shaq could probably take them. But, but that's, we have this process where I recognize this era, and I understand this era, I understand how to operate, how to dance to this music. But now our culture's kind of gone forward, and I'm not sure what to do, and so I have this longing. I have this in my Christian life, too. I'm committed to my life uh, to Jesus at a church called, uh, it was Concordant Presby- uh, Pentecostal Church. I Googled them this week because I was thinking about this stuff. They changed their name uh, to the harbor uh, of, of all things, and they spell it Canadian, so there's a U in it. 
And, uh, and they, they, that's where I became a Christian for the first time. And I committed my life really to Jesus as a teenager to like actually live for Jesus at a place called Stainer Camp, right? And I go back to Stainer Camp and it seems more run down than I remember it. Because in my mind, it's like pristine. In my mind, it's, it's this place where God lives. And it was at this camp, uh, and now they've moved that camp away from Stainer Camp to, because there's so many kids that go to it, they've moved it. And I don't understand that because God lives at Stainer Camp. So why would we make that move, right? And so we end up, attaching things and people and places and times to what we think God is doing. We have these mountaintop experiences and we think, this is what I like. Like, this was as good as it gets and that's where I want to stay. What I want to show you today, because we're going to read from Matthew chapter 17 as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is... uh, a recording or a record of Jesus' life written by Matthew for Jewish religious people to understand the Messiah. And that understand element is really important to Matthew when he writes this, this, this letter or this book or this story so that people will understand who Jesus was and what he came to fulfill and what he came to do. And in the story, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples He's made a turn in chapter 16 where he's kind of done this kind of raising up of a movement to where he's turned his face figuratively, but literally too. He's turned his face and he's moving towards Jerusalem, which is the center of the Jewish faith, the center of Judaism. It's where the temple was, and in the middle of the temple is where the glory of God was. That temple idea is why, to this day, Orthodox Jews hang out at that wall in the city of Jerusalem, the last remaining parts of the temple that was destroyed uh, after Jesus' death, the temple that was standing during Jesus' time was actually tore down and destroyed by the Romans. But that place carries a significance, and Jesus was headed towards that place. And we're going to read this story, and I want you to see, and you'll pick up on it pretty easily, it's pretty obvious, But see what Jesus does with mountaintop experiences and where Jesus moves from these mountaintop experiences. So you can read along with me or on your app, it's Matthew 17, or it'll be on the screen as well. So after six days, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, James's brother. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, which we'll talk about. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Excuse me. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, 
Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. There's some neat things in the story that we learn here, like that Jesus had an inner circle. Jesus had 12 disciples, and he had this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. John being described as Jesus' closest best friend. John took care of Jesus' mother after Jesus died, because Jesus was the oldest in his family. Peter was kind of the spokesperson, and Jesus said he would be the founder or the leader, the first leader of the church. And James became like the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was the most significant church. It made decisions, and then the other churches made decisions from there. Three guys that Jesus brought into his inner circle, and he brought them up on this mountaintop, not knowing what's going to happen, but knowing the disciples and knowing ourselves, that felt pretty good. Imagine that you're not just chosen for the 12, but you're in Jesus' inner circle. Like, that's something you, you brag on your Facebook about. You check in on Instagram. Hey, you know, just going up on the mountain, me and Jesus, and a couple other guys, but me and Jesus. Because he asked me, you know, I'm there. And when you go up on the mountain, Jesus transfigures which this passage is called the transfiguration. It's uh, this moment where Jesus is standing there and Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Jesus. Moses and Elijah and a guy named Enoch in the Old Testament are known as the, uh, the three guys who did not die, which becomes kind of awkward in the story They were walking along, and then God took them up. Moses goes for a walk on a mountain, and then he's not there anymore. And Enoch, we don't understand why. But Moses and Elijah, we understand why. Moses is the giver of the law. Moses is the guy who wrote the law for the people, who led the people out of Egypt, who did the exodus, the significant moment for the nation of Israel, Moses was the leader. He was like their George Washington and their Abraham Lincoln and their whatever your favorite president is, all wrapped up in one. He was the guy. And then Elijah, if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, Elijah was the greatest prophet. Elijah did signs and did miracles and said things and led as a prophet can lead in a way that no other prophet did. And so, as these two guys who never died just went from being alive to being alive in heaven, which has got to be the most awesome experience, these two guys appear on the mountain as God shows the relationship between Jesus and the law and Jesus and the prophets. Because Jesus himself calls himself the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Everything that they had done or everything that they had thought or everything that they believed so far led to and is fulfilled and is satisfied in Jesus. Jesus is who they were looking for. 
and they're up there and they appear. And then God comes in this cloud, which if you read the Old Testament, God often reveals his glory or shows his presence in a particular place using a cloud. And then God speaks and echoes what he said at Jesus' baptism, like in Matthew chapter 3, where he says, I am, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Imagine you're one of the inner three there having this experience. You need to do something, right? If you read in Mark or Luke, the other Gospels that tell this story, they were actually terrified and didn't know what to do, which is the appropriate response. If Moses and Elijah show up and Jesus transfigures, changes in his appearance and his face starts glowing and his clothes start glowing and then a cloud, which is God's glory, comes around you and God starts speaking, terror is the appropriate response. Like you think you've walked into the room you're not supposed to be in, right? Like I'm, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't belong in that room. It's like if you're at the casino, you play in this room, but you don't go back in the room where the rich people are. And if you accidentally walk in there, it's kind of awkward because you're the one that doesn't have any money. And soon they will be just like you. But, <laughs> but you're, you're just there. Peter solves problems or awkwardness that he feels by speaking. Some of us have this gift. Oh, this situation's weird. You know what would solve this? Words coming out of my mouth. I don't know what words, but words. Words would be helpful here. And so I'm just going to say something. It might not be the right thing. It might not be a helpful thing. But dang, if I'm not going to be the one that says something right here. And Peter offers to build three tents. Or other scriptures say like three shelters. Three places for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to live. Because that's what they need right now. And, so, and you can read this and go, well, that's very thoughtful. You know, they're in Israel, they're up on the mountain. They can probably use a little tent to hang out with, rest before they have to walk back down. And then you remember, oh yeah, these guys just appeared here. Probably resting in a tent is not what they need right now. But Peter thinks, this is a pretty hot deal. Like, I am into what's going on right now. And it would be appropriate to build a building here. Because this is a place that I want to remember for a long time. I haven't been there, but apparently when you go to like the Holy Land, Christians have built churches on everything. Like, this is, this is the traditional site of Jesus doing such and such. Build a church on it. Right? It's like a Portland version, but Christians, where you put a bird on everything. In Israel, Christians put a church on everything. Not saying we still do this today, but come on, right? Like, oh, this is a significant moment. Let's build a church on it. This is a significant thought or a theological development. Let's build a church on it. And maybe not building physical buildings, but we have these ideas and churches start out of it. And that's not good or bad. It just seems to be what we do with our thoughts. Like, oh, it seems like God is doing something. Let's stay here on this. Let's hold on to this thing and not move from it. It's a strange thing. Our church is part of a tribe that builds its theology on a guy named Jacob Arminius. 
You can tell how much I read about him. And John Wesley, much easier sounding name, so we focus on John Wesley. And so these guys came along and had some ideas, and we built our structures and everything on them. Because it's this moment in time that we thought was awesome and that we think, yeah, we need to do this thing. And so we have a little code book and we all do everything the same according to our little code book. Our code book's called The Discipline. Thankfully, we're part of a denomination that doesn't worship its code book. Like extremely thankfully, because I'd be in trouble. (laughs) Instead, we follow the scripture and it carries more authority than our code book does. The teachings of the Bible carry more authority than an idea that a guy at a certain point in history had. So when Peter's on a mountain thinking, hey, let's stay here, it's not like a thought that we can condemn. It's not like a thing we can say, stupid Peter, always open in his mouth. It's the exact same response that anyone would have. Now, after he suggests this, and the voice from the cloud starts speaking, he lays down, face down in the dirt, which would be their culturally appropriate response to God being in the room. Oh, God's here? Oh, don't look. Because looking at God is a dangerous thing. Like to actually see, to gaze upon God in all his glory, there's a good chance you're dead. And if you weren't already, you are now. Like if you're wondering, if you're ever wondering, am I dead or not? And you see God, yep. (laughs) And if you weren't, you are now. To the point where in the Old Testament, when Elijah was on the mountain and God wanted to encourage him, God let him see, the Bible is kind of weird the way you translate it, either his back or it let... Elijah was there allowed to look at where God just was. He wasn't able to actually look at God. Elijah, the greatest prophet in all of history, wasn't allowed to gaze upon God, but he could look at where God just was, and it affected him for the rest of his life. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he hangs hangs out up on a mountain for a long time, talks with God, comes back down and his face glows to the point that people can't look at him. He has to wear like a veil over his face. He wears them. I like to think of him wearing like a Mexican wrestling mask, you know, but that's just me. He could have been creative with his veil, right? Like put a smile on it or something or angry eyes or in the morning he had angry eyes veil and then later on after his coffee he had happy veil, but you probably shouldn't read my translation of the Bible. (laughs) But Moses has this interaction with God. Jesus has this interaction with God. And his clothes, his clothes that he's wearing start glowing white. How powerful is that, that an interaction with God changes the appearance of the clothes you're wearing? His face shone with light. To see God like that for these disciples... Understanding the Old Testament law and the Old Testament understanding of Jesus, the correct response is to put your face down and make sure you don't accidentally see God. It's a life-preserving like instinct. And so that's what they do. And when they lift their eyes up, there's Jesus, and Jesus only, 
to which you would, like me, go, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was cool to see Moses, Elijah, the whole cloud thing was cool. Let's not do that again, like without a warning, you know? Because they would have wanted to offer some sacrifices, make sure they've atoned for their sin. Under the Jewish law, there's a way of, of acting, a way of preparing in case God shows up. And when God just shows up, your thought is, oh, dang, I skipped sacrifice this morning. Oh, no, right? Just like you and I, God shows up and you're like, oh, dang, I didn't read my Bible this morning. I was, you know, turned the clock ahead. I was so tired. I hope God doesn't ask about that. I hope he doesn't know. What if, like, what if God tells him, oh, don't look, right? We have this reaction of everything that's wrong with me, and we think of how far away from being holy we are when we're struck with the immense holiness of God. When we're struck with his infinity, we can't help but consider the finite nature of ourselves. And so Jesus, in grace, taps these guys on the shoulder, says, hey, you can get up now. Which is probably funny for Jesus because he spent all of eternity with God. And so seeing people fall down for his father God is probably funny, right? It'd be like if your dad was president and everyone's always, ooh, president. You're like, yeah, right, this guy. He's a dork, right? I can't imagine what that's like, but you know what that's. And so you... He lifts them up, and what do they do? They walk down the mountain. And the disciples ask some questions, good questions for them. They ask questions about what the scribes taught, right? Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And the scribes were the interpreters, kind of the teachers, or the university professors in an institutional setting of what the Bible taught. And in Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 3 and chapter 4, it talks about how the Elijah must come. And the debate was, is it a literal Elijah? Like, we know Elijah didn't die, so is he literally coming back? And when Elijah shows up, we know the Messiah is here? Or is it a figurative thing? And Jesus actually answers that question. Pardon me, he explains to them, that John the Baptist was the Elijah. John the Baptist is the forerunner to who Jesus is. John the Baptist is setting up the redemption of the world. That's his role. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, or if you've been here a lot, a few months ago we talked about when John the Baptist was actually beheaded and killed because of his prophecy towards the people who were in power. Because John the Baptist spoke out loud, aggressively, the people who had the power to get rid of him got rid of him. And Jesus actually says, it won't be surprising when they treat the Son of Man, Jesus' name for himself, when they, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus is saying, here's what my ministry looks like. There's these mountaintop experiences, but my mission is not this mountaintop experience. My mission is down here in the regular, ordinary conditions of normal life. And when I go into normal life, the expected result 
will be my own suffering because I've seen the suffering of the prophets ahead of me, the prophets who told of my coming. Many of them were killed, and John the Baptist is the last prophet killed because of his claiming to pave the way for Jesus, his pointing towards God's plan of redemption in the Christ, in the Messiah. If Jesus says, all the people who've talked about me have been killed, or sorry, many of the people who've talked about me have been killed, then don't be surprised when the same result happens to me. Jesus' mission and Jesus' hope is not mountaintop experiences. He likes them, like he enjoys them. It's obvious that this was a good time. But his mission is to come down the mountain and be among the people. His mission is to hand himself over for the redemption of the world. It's an interesting thing because when we think of most religions, you think of, and you look at like in the comic strips, the guru sits on the mountain. And we go up to the guru, right? God is here, and we do the work towards to get to him. And for Jesus, it's the opposite. And you think about how striking that is. In all religions, the God is is up here, and we try to get up there, except for Christianity, where the God comes down here. You see, when Peter wants to set up tents, he wants to give a place for this glory of God to hang out. And the truth is that Jesus is the tent. Like Jesus is God in human form. The Gospel of John leads off this way and says the, the Word was God and the Word was with God. It uses this word, word, because of the significance in their culture of what words were. And then John 1.14 says the Word, and the, in the message it's the best, the paraphrase the message, put on flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. In a straight translation, it's that the Word tabernacled among us and the tabernacle was this tent church that they had god's original like structure building that he set up for the people jesus was that among the people and if you want to know the glory of god it exists in jesus and then at the beginning of the church and in jesus is at the the turn of jesus's life he actually refers to the church, and the, the Bible refers to the church as the body of Christ. God lives in our world in flesh and blood in what we call the church. Which we've turned into buildings, places, structures, belief systems, times on Sundays, or if you're two full Saturday night. But church, according to the scripture, is a group of people. Church isn't our church over here and their church over there. We are church. The Bible doesn't put these weird boundaries that we do. Like boundaries of I like my music like this, late 90s hip hop. 
Nobody's starting a church like that because there is one of us. <laughs> but there is this understanding that we have built of church, that church is this thing that we go to. When a biblical understanding is that the church gathers and then the church is scattered all over the place. Like the church exists. The church is. And God exists in our world. His glory is witnessed to in the church. As a side note, the temptation to that means you have to be this great witness, right? Like you better not screw up because it's a saying I hate that you might be the only Jesus somebody sees. But the Bible does not say you individually are the church. You individually are not the body of Christ. You don't get, this is why I don't understand churches on computers, like internet church, like I'm going to sit there and stare at my screen. Because church is something you're with somebody else. And church is in the interaction of you and the other Christians around you. And so when we begin to understand what church is, it's not the Grove people you know. It's not uh, like you living at your work. It's not uh, these weird, it's not like Grove Church, North Albany Church, Riverside Church. It's the interaction of the church bearing witness And it's not that the church is perfect. It's that the church shows grace to each other. And let me say that again. It is not that we're perfect. And if you're looking for the perfect church, by coming here today, you screwed it up. That's a joke. But but it's kind of true. But the perfect church is the church that extends grace to each other. What makes this church awesome is that we have some people here who lean way right in their politics and others who watch MSNBC and think it's reliable. And all the Fox News people are laughing right now, right? (laughs) What makes this church great is that we have some people who think that education will solve the world's problems, other people who think clean water will solve the world's problems, other people who think something else. We have people here who love to shoot things and eat them, and other people who love to protect animals and hug trees, right? It's what the church is, is the grace that is extended to each other. And church isn't this elation thing that we have where we get together on Sunday and we do some things and dedicate some babies and it's awesome and we sing some songs and they're just killer and the emotional experience and and we, we listen to us and we pray and we just, what Jesus says is, yeah, that's great. Now, let's walk down the mountain here and let's actually live together and let's expect the result of negativity, which doesn't mean we roll into it. Like Jesus didn't roll into negativity, but Jesus was killed for extending too much grace Jesus was killed for allowing people to worship him as God. For telling the truth. And Jesus never told the truth in a megaphone kind of way or a condemning kind of way. But truth, in, like 
when Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that truth of Jesus is grading. And it's not just like grading on the world, like this isn't a judgment thing, it should be grading on each one of us. Because the parts of me which are not Christ-like, my admiration for 90s hip-hop, I don't think Jesus has any admiration for 90s hip-hop, but that the things in me, my pride, my selfishness, my sinful nature, great against who Jesus is, great against what the truth is. And so I act in a way that I don't want to act. I do what I do not wish to do. I think in a way that is undeserving of the gospel. And those things, the truth of Jesus, conforms me and grates against me and sands the rough edges off to mold me into more of the image of Christ, which happens in relationship with other Christians. So when we think about loving Jesus, following Jesus, being in Jesus, being part of the church, being a follower, being what we call a Christian, it's easy to think about those mountaintop experiences as awesome, right? I wish I could go back there. I wish I could go back to that little harbor Pentecostal church and go up to the front and point at the stair where I first knelt down and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. It's a significant moment, but it's not where I belong. I don't stay there. On the back stairs of the chapel at Stainer Camp, where I prayed with my youth pastor, I'd love to go back there because it's a moment. It's a place I can point to. But if I stayed there, it would be holy, but it'd be no earthly good. I'd love to go back there. I'd love to have that feeling. But that feeling isn't the witness of Jesus in the world because Jesus walks down the mountain. And he doesn't take that elation and build it into everything in your life. Some parts of your life are just going to be terrible. Like Jesus wasn't on the cross going, this is super, this is awesome. It was terrible. When Jesus handed himself over, when he was arrested and beaten and put to death. But the pattern that that sets in motion is the pattern of resurrection. Because resurrection to Jesus is greater than this elated mountaintop experience. Resurrection, the putting to death of the old, the putting to death of that which isn't Christ-like, and being raised into Jesus is the point and is the mission. So that resurrection happens in me and in you, and perhaps most importantly, it happens in us. To where I do things and you do things, where that relationship, which is the witness of church, starts to be strained, and we put it to death and resurrect it and live in peace. And the love of the church is the witness to the world of the love of God. Resurrection is what Jesus is turning towards. Because resurrection is the natural order of everything, right? It's the way our universe is set up. Things die so that other things can live. 
And in a real way, Jesus died so that people could live. And not just have a physical body where you're walking around and being alive, but living in Jesus in a way that Jesus calls the way, his, the life and the truth. Life is found in Jesus. What it is to be human is found in Jesus. This is why we come down from the mountain and live our everyday lives. And so we're going to continue to do church. We're going to continue to sing killer songs and have just an awesome time. You're going to continue to have experiences where you can point to a place or point to a time or point to a scripture or an idea or a song and say, that, that is what I'm anchored to. That is where it's at. And you're going to continue to face the temptation to stay there. And you're going to miss the point of what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus isn't all about Sunday morning. He isn't all about that one song or that one scripture or that one idea. He isn't all about that one place. But he isn't all about this middle school cafeteria. He isn't all about a building or a time. Jesus is all about coming down the mountain and looking for resurrection and employing resurrection in the normal, ordinary conditions of life. So let's pray that way before we sing together. Jesus, I want nothing more, and everyone here wants nothing more than to experience something like that transfiguration. I mean, tell me that wouldn't be awesome. To see the glory of God in action. And tell me I don't want to stay there. But Lord, we pray that you would lead us down the mountain. We pray that you would give us understanding so that we see in our regular, ordinary, normal conditions of life your mission of loving the world in a, in a resurrection kind of way. In our normal, everyday, ordinary lives, may you be present. And while we have mountaintop experiences and they're just awesome, we pray that you would keep us from staying there. When we say, let's build some tents and let's live here, God, we pray that you would show up and do something that terrifies us and scares us so much that we don't build the tents. That we don't stay where we think you are, but we move forward into what greatness you have ahead of us. May we actually believe that the best days are ahead of us. Sometimes that's hard to believe because we have had some killer, awesome days. And we think those best days are in the past. And the best songs were written. The best movements of God happened. The best society had to offer was. But God, I pray that it will be. And I pray that you would cause us to walk into what will be. And allow us to walk with you and in you in a way that brings your mission and your resurrection to our world. Keep us from camping out and help us to move into what you're doing. 
By your name we pray. Amen.